Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, if you haven't done it already, now turn back to Matthew chapter 2. And I don't know if you heard about the man that was in a hot air balloon. And he realized he was lost way up in the air. So he reduced his altitude and he spotted a woman below. He descended a bit more and he shouted, Excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him in an hour, uh, an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. And so the woman below looked up and she said, well, you're in a hot air balloon hovering approximately 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west latitude. And from the balloon above, the man said, well, you must be an engineer. I am, replied the woman. How do you know? Well, answered the balloonist, everything you told me is technically correct but I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you've not been much help at all. If anything, you've delayed my trip. The woman below responded, well, you must be in management. (laughs) I am, replied the balloonist, but how did you know? Well, said the woman, you don't know where you are or where you are going. You've risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. Furthermore, you made a promise which you have no idea how to keep and you expect people below you to solve your problems. The fact is you're in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow you've managed to make it all my fault. (laughs) I love that little story. And, you know, as we look at what happened just after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we actually see some guys like that. We see Herod the fake king who was insecure in his position. And he was looking for help dealing with his Jesus problem. And he got counsel from some religious leaders who were technically correct in what they told him, but they didn't really have any ability to help him at all. But we also see some remarkable wise men seek Jesus, who in many ways model for us the heart we should have as we approach him this new year. And so... Uh, Since we had the time of the Lord's Supper together and we're a few minutes into the time where we've been sitting now, go ahead and stand. Let's stand in honor of God's word like sometimes they did in Old Testament days. So we're in Matthew chapter 2 and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 and we are putting it up on the screen for you too and I'm preaching from the ESV, English Standard Version. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the, Herod the king, I, did, I just said Herod the hing, didn't I? <laughs> Dyslexia catches you at the worst moments. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
they told him, we know this, it's in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, which means house of bread. The bread of life was born in the house of bread saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of rejoicing, isn't it? They rejoiced greatly with great joy. And the word mega is there in the Greek. They rejoiced exceedingly with mega joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They worshiped Jesus. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Wise men and wise women still worship him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Matthew chapter 2 telling us about the wise men who came from a long way away to worship you. Others we read of couldn't even go a short distance to meet you but they had come a long way seeking you and they were satisfied, whereas others opposed you all of their days rather than turn to you, even though they said they did everything for God. And that breaks our heart. We think about the different categories of people we see here, Lord God. And we definitely, as we start 2024, wanna be like the wise men who sought and found Jesus. And we wanna be like them and still worship you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. First thing I want to look at from the first couple verses there is that wise men followed the guidance of two stars. They followed the guidance of two stars. Verse 1 says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Notice it says that these wise men came after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It could have been anywhere from the same night that the shepherds saw Jesus the, when he was born. Could have been anywhere from them out to it looks like two years. Why do you say two years, Pastor Danny? Well, according to verse 16, Herod had all the baby boys of Bethlehem under two years of age killed in hopes of killing Jesus. So that gives us how far out it could have been sometime before that. And according to verse uh, 11, it, we know that the wise men found Jesus not in a manger, but a house. So Joseph had gotten them from a, in a better temporary situation. They're out of the manger scene and into a house, and it may have even been among his Bethlehem kinfolk. He'd come there to register for the census so he could pay his taxes. And um, he may very well by that time been staying temporarily with kinfolk like many of you are staying temporarily with your loved ones and we'll see what happens next. From Luke we know that just after the one month mark, they visited the temple to, get, to dedicate Jesus just like observant Jews did. So they went to the temple at the 33 day mark to dedicate Jesus after Mary's days of purifications were over. All this is spelled out in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And we know from there that they offered, now follow me here, we know from there that they offered two pigeons 
or turtle doves as the sacrifice when they dedicated Jesus, the sacrifice that was called for. Now, how does that, uh, what does that indicate? What can we know about Jesus because, and, and Mary and Joseph and their financial situation because of them offering two turtle doves instead of a lamb? What can we know? Yeah, they were poor. The law prescribed that if you weren't wealthy enough to bring a lamb sacrifice, you could bring two turtle doves or pigeons and sit dead. So that leads me to believe the wise men visited them in Bethlehem sometime after that. And boy, were the gifts the wise men had to bring really going to help. And so kids, I think you can use that to make an argument that 35, 40 days from now, your parents should have a second Christmas time to bring gifts to you. But who were these wise men from the east? And why did Pastor Danny say they followed the guidance of not one, but two stars? Let me first say that we're not really sure how many there were. Past readers said three because they brought three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they were assumed to be kings because it was assumed only kings had gold to give. But there may have been dozens of them. Uh, we don't know. They certainly caused a star stir when they got to Jerusalem talking about the star. More helpful for us is that in the Greek it says they were magi, not kings, but magi from the east. And you need to understand something about the Bible. Since so much of it is saturated in things Jewish as it moves toward the time the Messiah will come, first to die for our sins and later to rule on earth, to understand the Bible you really have to think about your map in terms of Israel outward and so for them to the east would have meant Babylon or it would have meant Persia which is modern-day Iraq or modern-day Iran and this is where it gets fun to study because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew uh, with some Aramaic thrown in uh, the language of Babylon from the days the children of Israel were in Babylon but mostly Hebrew with some Aramaic thrown in but it was translated into Greek before Herod ruled over Jerusalem. We call that translation the Septuagint because 70 scholars down in Alexandria, Egypt, so some North Africans translated the Old Testament into Greek before Jesus ever came. And we know from there that the word magi only appears in one book of the Greek Old Testament. Can you tell me which one it is? The book of Daniel. Now, those of you who love these notes that I give you, you can oftentimes tell if you just look a little bit and pay attention a little bit and you meditate a little bit on things before the service starts, you'll be able to give that answer. So uh, some of you might have gotten that just because you knew it and others, Danny gave you the clues there, right? That's kind of fun. Where did Daniel live during the events he describes in his book? Babylon, which was overtaken by Persia. So the only book that includes the word magi in it in the Old Testament many times is the book of Daniel that was also set in Babylon and Persia as Daniel was faithful to God while he was in a pagan land. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is described as having a wisdom from God that made him excel all of the magi, all the wise men, all those that were thinkers in Babylon and then Persia. From chapter one, we see that true, that faith in his God and his diligence put together made him just uh, one of the most helpful men in Babylon and then Persia, even as Joseph had been earlier in Egypt. 
And it's amazing how God puts his people different places around the world to serve him. And sometimes some of the finest Christians you meet are in some of the places where the highest power games are being played and the most wickedness is being displayed. God has his way of doing that. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that Daniel was so wise and and regarded like this because the wisest man that ever lived apart from Jesus, who did Jesus in the New Testament say the wisest person that ever lived was? Solomon, right, King Solomon, very good. Solomon in Proverbs 9.10 said this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when a believer looks at the word fear, we don't have to fear judgment. If you're not a believer, you do. But if you're a believer, the word fear should be the word revere, fear, awe, reverence. Reverencing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Worshiping the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I like another translation there that says understanding instead. So great was Daniel's wisdom that he was actually set above all the other think tank thinkers that they had there in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar did that over five centuries before Christ came to earth. And then as often happens, the man of God was forgotten as one king turned into another king, son took over, Daniel was marginalized, he was just somewhere out there doing his reading and thinking and praying and all those different things. Some of you are out there and you go, you know, I did so much for the Lord in days gone by. Does God still have some great assignment for me? Daniel's getting up in years a little bit and God had more for him to do. And as he prayed and sought the Lord, the time came when the Holy Spirit, the coach looked around and said, You're in again, Daniel. Get off the bench. Hope you've been preparing back there. Hope you stretched out. Hope you're ready because your moment comes again. And so at a banquet that was basically going to be about judging Nebuchadnezzar's son, there was writing on the wall. There was writing on the wall and none of the wise people in that day could interpret it. And the queen came in and told Nebuchadnezzar's son this, Daniel 5, 11, and 12. There is a man in your kingdom There's always a person in the kingdom ready to serve God. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? That's what it looked like to pagans. That guy's got something different about him. Man, it's like all the ones up there in Olympus have come down and helped this guy. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom of the gods were found in him. Who was really in him? God, the Holy Spirit, right? And he was really a child of God, and that's why he looked so wise to all them. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. So Daniel was called back to service. He outlasted that king and was beloved also by the king of Persia once he routed Babylon. Folks, I believe that the wise men who came to seek the Jewish king came because they had been influenced by Daniel and his prophecies. Centuries had passed, their knowledge was incomplete, but they followed the knowledge they had, and it must have been something else, you know. Mark Hefner, I don't know, did he tell the story about the church where people pray upside down when he was here? Uh, We're supporting him in this year's Christmas offering. Years ago, he was here, and he'll hopefully be here in the next few months, my buddy Mark Hefner. Uh, from Taiwan and and ministry to the Han Chinese people. Um, Missionaries were going through China once and they came across this church that really seemed to love Jesus but knew almost nothing about the scriptures but they called out fervently to Jesus and they praised Jesus. (laughs) And uh, 
they called for prayer and everybody got on their head and was standing on their head while they were praying. And the missionary said, why are you doing that? And they said, doesn't everybody? That's how you get the power in prayer. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever taken the time to kneel. There's something to that posture. But these people believe the power came when you stood on your head and prayed. And the missionary said, please tell us why that is. And they said, well, the founder of this group of hundreds of us Christians, he was one time didn't know the Lord and he was walking and he fell into a well and he was upside down in the well. You know, so head first, feet up. And he began praying to every God he could think of. Prayed to Confucius, prayed to ancestor worship, prayed to Buddha, all these different things, right? Whatever, you know, Allah, whatever. And finally he said, oh God of the Christians, Jesus, if you will get me out of this mess, I'll follow you the rest of my days. And sure enough, somebody came along instantly, pulled them up out of the well, and he said, well, that's the God, Jesus is God. And so years later, they were fervent and they were following the limited information they would have, calling out to Jesus who they barely knew with fervor because of that. And, and another example of that is, can people really follow what somebody said hundreds of years later? There was a Jewish rabbi named Haggai, and he lived between 290 and 350 AD. Daniel was born in Israel and went to Babylon. This fellow was born in Babylon, but later returned to the land of Israel. Rabbinical literature, rabbi literature, records his teaching that during the recitation of the Aaron's blessing from Numbers 14, uh, uh, Numbers 6, sorry, people should not look at the priest when he is blessing them, the Lord bless you and keep you. Don't look at him. Instead, put your halal or your um, hand over your face. You know what happens 1,700 years later in modern Jewish worship? When it comes time to be, get, receive the blessing, people do this. When the cantor sings that beautiful blessing on Shabbat, they put their hands over that. 1,700 years later. So the point is, these guys had limited information, but I believe they had been so impressed with Daniel back in the day that there was people within Persia and Babylon who continued to seek after and follow. We know later there's an Ethiopian eunuch probably tying and he's worshiping the uh, Lord coming up to Jewish feasts, probably going all the way back to when the Queen of Sheba came up uh, to uh, celebrate because of what Solomon had taught her. So just 550 years, there were still men following the teachings of Daniel. 550 years later, they were given a special miracle, miraculous star to follow, but the first star they were following was Daniel, and that's why I said two stars. Here's what Daniel 12:3 says. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's where DC talk got the song, I want to be in the light as he is in the light. I want to shine like the stars in the heavens. Hope you do. So Matthew 2 starts with wise men following guidance of two stars across hundreds of years and hundreds of miles. And in verse 2, we see they got as far as Jerusalem and began asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And as we're going to see next, their words went off like a fire alarm there in Jerusalem. And that leads us to verses 3 through 6, because there we see an insecure king is counseled by Israel's unmoved shepherds. 
Verse three says, when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. (laughs) Sounds like some homes I know, right? When mama's troubled, the whole house is troubled with mama. When uh, one of the children is more difficult and troubled, the whole family's troubled with the child, right? When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod was not a full Jew, certainly wasn't a descendant of David. In fact, he was an Idumean, descended from, more from Esau than Jacob, just like some of the things going on now tie back to Jacob and Esau over there. This is one of those stories as well. Herod uh, trying to kill Jesus, uh, Haman trying to take out Mordecai, some of this same ancient uh, feud that went on that goes all the way back to things talked about in Genesis. At 25 years of age, back in 47 BC, Rome had made him ruler over Galilee. And he was liked by the right people back in Rome, so he was made ruler over Judea in 41, and eventually also ruled over Samaria, and thus given the title King of the Jews. So if Israel has three provinces, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, he got to rule them all. After him, it would be divided among his sons into different tetrarch areas under the Syrian part of Rome. And so you see some of that language in Luke there as well. Now at his best, Herod was a great builder. And he had gone back to Rome, I should say also, and he said, listen, it'll help me rule those people if I can be called a king rather than just a tetrarch. Uh, it'll really annoy them a little bit, but also put them in place if they, if they call uh, me the king of the Jews. And so he'd gotten the Roman Senate's permission to be called king of the Jews there. At his best, he was a great builder. Jews would say his greatest accomplishment was what he made of the temple complex back in Jerusalem. It was already there, but he made it glorious. And many of the scholars said, man, if you haven't seen the beautiful architecture of what the temple's become, you haven't seen a building. He would have probably said his palace and other buildings in Caesarea were where where it was really happening. He built up Caesarea to be a Roman city and was lived there. But at his worst, he was given over to lust and insecurity. He married 10 different women. That just hurts my head to think about. And several of his own children and at least one of those wives he had killed because he was uh, jealous of them and and insecure around them and thought they might try to take over. So he's ruled by his lust and his insecurity. He was disliked by many people, including one of those mothers-in-law and her best friend, Cleopatra. So all these things come together with some of the history that you read about. He knew he didn't have a strong claim biologically to be the king of the Jews. So you know what he did? He had the paperwork you know, like somebody having their birth certificate hidden or something like that so it doesn't reveal what people don't want to know. He had his genealogical information destroyed so it wouldn't show how little claim he had to really call himself the king of the Jews. Now, he was a cunning and ruthless man who would do anything to hold on to power. And verse 3 tells us that he was troubled, and when he was troubled, as we said, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Things were in an upheaval. And, I mean, think about this just as far as politically goes. You've got a king, you've got a strong ruler, you've got these uh, occupation, intimidation going on for the Jewish people there, and all of a sudden there's talk of the real king of the Jews being around. My goodness, uh, you know, you can think about how everybody was on edge to see if they were going to enter a time of civil war or war or something going on. So as verse 4 says... Herod decided, let me assemble the chief priests 
And many of them were Sadducees, known for compromises with Rome. He also assembled the scribes, those fundamentalist Pharisees, known because they knew the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, so well. And he brings them together, and I'm kind of picturing, I'm, I don't want to make too much light of it, but I'm kind of picturing, you know, uh, this, them with their robes and all their different outfits on and things like that that you see in Christmas plays and things like that and on The Chosen. I, I see them coming together there, but I kind of see them with the Awana buzzer in their hands, ready to buzz that they've got the answer, right? I mean, now, one thing I love about the Iwana curriculum, the Word of Life curriculum, the Sunday school curriculum we have, it always talks about orthodoxy, which is correct belief, but it also talks about orthopraxy, correct practice, and making correct belief turn into correct behavior so that we can glorify God. But I picture these guys here, and all they want is the award, the prize, right? And he says, I need to know... And, and I can almost see him agitated as he says it. I, I need to know where the Christ, the, the Messiah, you know, as you guys say, where is he going to be born? And they go, ooh, we know the answer. We know the answer. I know this one. It's a little book. It's Micah. It's, most people can't find it in the scrolls, you know, and all those things. But in Micah, about five pages in, you know, uh, it says that it's going to happen in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. And I just picture them with smug satisfaction on their, the king needed us. And we got it right. We know our scrolls. We know our scriptures. And we were able to help the king and good for us. We're going to put that in our next letter to supporters. We helped the king with our Bible information and we're going to teach a lot more Bible information to each other throughout this next year in hopes that maybe we'll be ready the next time King Herod wants to play Bible trivia with us. Now, folks, we know why he wanted to know. Why did, why did Herod want to know where the Messiah was going to be born? Because if a king of the Jews has been born, I want to kill him now so I don't have to compete with him later. I'll just get him now. Now, it's not surprising to me that they were able to answer Herod quickly. They poured over the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. What does surprise me is that the shepherds of Israel did not have their own curiosity aroused enough to ask why Herod was inquiring. If not out loud, at least to themselves. Why does he want to know? Because what did they expect the Messiah to be? At least on paper, what did they expect the Messiah to be? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the one that would come. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. The one who will rule over the land of Israel on the throne of David, cast off foreign occupying power and have a perfect rule and he'll deal decisively with all of his enemies. Now, that could have all happened on the front end had Israel accepted him, the suffering servant and then the conquering king passages. Uh, C.I. Schofield said it really well, you know, in their day, they were literally taking the promises that Messiah would reign and rule, or at least they said they were, 
but they didn't know what to do with passages about Messiah suffering for sins in the place of sinners. In our day, it's kind of reversed. We rejoice that Christ physically suffered for us, but we have problems believing that he actually will rule on earth one day in a perfect reign, and then that there will be a new earth. We want to make it about heaven and clouds when the Bible makes very clear our final reality is being in new bodies on a new earth, forever worshiping the Lord, the best of the old earth without any sin. That's a great point, and it ties those things together. But at least on paper, when they talked to each other, they said, you know, it's going to be great when Messiah comes. By the way, do you know, here we are, and it's the year 2023, about to turn into 2024, and you see those Jewish folks go to the wall there, what's left of the wall of this same Herod's temple, and they pray there at it, and sometimes they'll put little prayers in there. And one of the two things they're praying for is for the Messiah to come. There was an expectation that he would come. And here, Herod's asking, where's the Messiah going to be born? All Jerusalem's abuzz about something or another. It surprises me that these who were the shepherds of Israel didn't have curiosity aroused enough to ask why Herod was inquiring. We would think that as religious men, they would have been anticipating that coming. We would think that they would have gone from Herod's presence and done what? Done what the shepherds did. What did the shepherds do? We got to go straight to Bethlehem and see if this is true. And the shepherds had been satisfied the night Jesus was born. We'd think they would have immediately walked over to Bethlehem to see if their Messiah had come like the shepherds did. But they remained unmoved. And that's why I called them unmoved shepherds here. What a contrast. The Gentile wise men with limited revelation traveled hundreds of miles to seek out the Savior of the world. The unmoved shepherds of Israel couldn't be bothered to walk five miles to see if the Messiah was here. They were more concerned with the political favor of a madman than experiencing the unfolding of God's plan in their generation. You know, I love being around baby Christians. I remember some of the things I did when I was first a Christian, questions I asked and people just smiling at me, laughing at me, sometimes mocking me because they were just so simple, just so naive. And, you know, I'd say, hey, hey, let me tell you what I learned in 1 Peter. Oh, Danny, Danny, you're supposed to say 1 Peter. Everybody knows that. I was like, I didn't know that. (laughs) And then I found out that British people say 1 Peter, so I was smarter than I knew. Hey, hey, I see my name all over the page of the Old Testament. The tribe of Dan, the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Dan. And he's laughing at me and saying, Danny, that's the sorriest tribe Israel had. <laughs> Just trying to work it out, figure it out. Taking the limit of revelation, following it. And sometimes children, when they get a heart for the Lord, they'll, they'll go in there and you're in the doctor's office, Right? And the children have been told by their Sunday school teachers, hey, tell everybody about Jesus this week. And so they're in the doctor's office. They look at the grumpy old man next to them and said, do you know Jesus, mister? And their parents are like, don't say that. Don't don't, don't talk about it. And the old man just kind of smiles because children just say that, right? I think about the wonder of it all. And then I think about those of us who have lost the wonder of it all. We know more Bible than we ever did, but we're unmoved in the things that move the heart of God. Can I just say that my greatest fear for you all in the year 2024, when every spare bit of oxygen in the room is going to be sucked into talking about this presidential election upcoming, I just wish we could skip 
from 2023 to 2025 because I care more than anything about Jesus and advancing his gospel. And all year long, all of you and everybody around is gonna be so distracted. Don't you let that happen. Keep Jesus first all year. I'm afraid that we're in the danger of being more like the unmoved shepherds of Israel than the wise men because we are too often religiously educated far beyond the level of our spiritual obedience. Let me tell you something I know about you if you've been in Sunday school longer than seven years or if you're a child that's gotten the Timothy Award or if you're a youth that goes through the Word of Life curriculum and been through five or six years of it. You know what the truth about you is? You are more educated in the things of the Lord than most third world pastors. And here they are with their limited knowledge going out into situations where some of them are dying for the faith and you're still worrying about the simplest matters of obedience in your life. May 2024 be the year where you see it in God's word. The Holy Spirit takes that word, puts it in your head and in your heart, and then you act on that by faith. Every time. The secret of victory in the Christian life is saying yes to God, the Holy Spirit, one decision at a time. These shepherds, nobody was more educated. Nobody had more of the knowledge. Nobody had more of the background. But they went right back and high-fived and congratulated each other rather than walk five stinking miles to see if the Messiah was really here. Oh, may 2024 not find us sitting on the premises, but standing on the promises and searching for the prodigals. Amen? Amen? amen. amen. That's a better amen. Let's bring it down the home stretch. Verses 7 through 12. Wise men find the real star and they shun the fake king. Well, Herod was cunning, as we see in verses 7 and 8. He called the wise men to himself secretly and decided with all he had going on, he could trick them. I picture Jafar from the Disney show, right? The Disney movie. I picture Jafar uh, or uh, Uncle Scar, the Disney villain, you know. When you find the child, let me know so I too can come and assassinate or worship him. I want to worship the boy. You know, I think we can see Herod's arrogance here, don't you? I mean, he... If I'm him and I'm really all that he's cut out to be is this ruthless guy, I think I'd have sent some spies after them, don't you? <laughs> or maybe I'm just, you know, if he'd sent the spies, they could have reported back where the baby was and they could have gone and done the hit, you know, but maybe I just followed too many true crime podcasts and streamed too many detective shows, though, but... After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And I think from that verse, we can gather that this was indeed a specially prepared star. Now, I know some of you have studied this and you know that you've heard uh, some... Uh, people that study the stars uh, say that that was a year when two or three of the planets aligned and it would have been brighter than ever. And maybe that's the case. God can do it any which way, right? But I think this was more like when God led Israel toward the promised land using a pillar of cloud by day 
and a pillar of fire by night that stood above the holy tent. It would be there, and then when they were supposed to move, the tent, uh, the cloud would move, and they would, the fire would move, and they'd go with it. A specially prepared sign, a signal like that. Here another pillar was shining directly above the holy child and led the wise men to God incarnate. That's just a fancy word that means God in the flesh, God in a bod incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. God was in a bod. And both those things, the holy tent and the holy child, represented God's actual presence with his people. And so the wise men followed that revelation that they had and they got to meet Christ. The unmoved shepherds of Israel missed it and most of them continued to miss it throughout Jesus' time on earth. Jesus later told some of those same unmoved shepherds of Israel that it's an evil sign. It's an evil generation that asked for a sign. Then he told them the biggest sign to come would be the Son of Man rising from the dead. But those who had missed the sign literally over top of where Jesus' cradle was went on to miss the sign of a man rising from the dead, the greatest miracle of all time. Don't make the same mistake. Be like those wise men in 2024. Wise men still seek him. Wise men still find him. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, what did they do? They rejoiced greatly with great joy, mega joy. In verse 11, it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They found the real star, the one Balaam had prophesied about numbers, the star of Jacob, the star of Israel, and they worshiped him. And wise men still worship him. I hope that more than anything else in this year to come, worship will characterize all the wise men and women here today. I like how you added that to the, oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, don't you dare ignore him, Christ the Lord. What does it mean to worship someone or something? Worship means to ascribe value to someone or something. A worshiper of Jesus shows in word and deed how much they value Jesus. How much do you value Jesus? Does it show up in the main indicators that show us who you are? Does it show up in your time? Does it show up in your commitments? Does it show up in your treasure like for these guys? May people look at you and say, there goes a guy, there goes a girl, there goes a person who follows Jesus and loves him and worships him and would do anything he asked them to do. That's still the number one thing I tell people when they ask me, how's the tabernacle doing, you know? And I say, well, we don't have as many people around as we used to, few churches do, but I say, we've got at least a couple hundred people at the tabernacle that would do anything Jesus asked them to do. And it feels pretty cool to be their pastor. And may we have another banner year of ministry this year Really, the number one thing I want to gauge this year, I don't want to do it in a legalistic way, but after today, we're going to take up these pebbles, these stones that represent answer to prayers. And this coming year, we're going to celebrate hours we spend ministering for the Lord outside the church walls or with a ministry from outside that uses our building, and we help them do that. And so 
it'll count if you come and pray tomorrow because it's us engaging with the community to make Danville a better place. And every time we get 100 hours of service in, we're, gonna, we're still looking for the best way. We're going to visualize it somehow like this has been a visualization, visualization these last couple years. The wise men did what all true worshipers do. They tangibly expressed their worship through their time and their giving. They gave money and medicine to help raise the Christ child. You know, gold, it's a gift fit for a king, especially the king of kings. And, you know, it also profits a prophet. Incense is a gift fit for a priest who would light the incense in the holy place. And myrrh is a gift fit for the priest to anoint the sacrificial offering, in this case, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The wise men saw it and they found the real star of the story, the star of his story. May you that need him find him today. And for those of you that know him, may 2024 be a Daniel 12:3 year for you. May you lead many to righteousness this year and shine like the stars in the heavens, bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.